0: This is Doug Eccles. We want to welcome you to our podcast, Got Better Things for You. Several years ago, we were uh, on television in Guyana. We kept being on this one television program called uh, Good Morning Guyana, like Good Morning America, but only Not quite as fancy. You know what I'm saying? And they would interview us while we were there in the country preaching crusades and doing youth camps. And one particular man that would interview us, he seemed very favorable to us, but we would do the interview and then we'd leave and we wouldn't talk to him. Well, one day he stepped out of the studio and he said, I want to meet with you if I can while you're here. And I found out he was a Southern Baptist pastor. I thank God for the Southern Baptists. And uh, he said, I don't know, he said, but next time you're in this country, I want you to come hold a revival in my church. I said, you realize I'm not Southern Baptist at all. <laughs> Just thought I'd mention that. I'm not against the Southern Baptist, but I am not. I, I don't claim to be Southern Baptist, alright? And he, I said, uh, uh, And he said, well, what are you going to preach? I said, well, I'm sure it'll be in the Bible. He said, if it's in the Bible, preach it. Well, this man, uh, he we had a revival in his church. He got filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he got kicked out of the Southern Baptist Fellowship. And now we have a whole network of people we're working with that were former Southern Baptists that have been filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And God is moving. Well, one of the young men that was in that revival, the very first revival, got a call of God in his life. And he said, I feel like I should go back and start a church in the community that I grew up in, a little village down the river. And uh, this is where we're going to build the church for him and his wife. They're just in their early 20s, but uh, feel that God has called them there. And they have already have about 40 people meeting in a house. But what will happen is there's no electricity in this village. So when we come in there build the church and we have a generator and we turn on that generator at night, people have nothing else to do. So we've got a captive audience. They come and hear us preach the Gospel and people come to Christ. I'm going to tell you, I believe if you're interested in that, you ought to get hooked up with us. We're going back to Guatemala and Honduras in March to do a feeding of 5,000 will feed uh, 1,500 families in Honduras uh, four days of food. And we found uh, years ago you cannot eat a Bible. How many try to go to lunch on this? How many you know you can't eat it? It'll sustain you spiritually, but every now and then you got to have something to take in. You know what I'm saying. I plan on doing it this afternoon with your pastor. But I'm going to tell you something. What we found is people that are hungry, if you'll offer them a meal and you'll offer them some food, they'll come from many miles. Some of the people that we were just in Guatemala in a place called Escapulis where they worshiped the black Christ. Uh, we were just there and uh, they worshiped the black Christ because of voodoo got involved with Catholicism because the Haitian slaves would not come to... Uh, Mass, so the Catholic priests painted Jesus black. So now they come to Mass when they mix their voodoo with Catholicism. And anywhere the devil rules and reigns, there's always poverty, sickness, and lack. How many know what I'm saying? So we go in there and we offer them food and they walk for miles. One family walked eight hours when they heard about this uh, by the radio. And, and they came and we gave them food. But what was greater than that is we gave them Jesus Christ. That will last for eternity. And I'm going to tell you, it will change people's lives. We've got other things going on. We've got a crusade in Mexico in May. We've got a pastor's conference in April of 2009. An annual youth camp that we do in Guyana. We're seeing hundreds of Southern Baptist teenagers filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We still think that only the blood of Jesus gets you to heaven, but the Holy Ghost will help you have victory on your way to heaven you believe in that? All right. Well, praise the Lord. I believe uh, we had a, something very unusual happen in Guyana. One of the men uh, that we work with, he's a money exchanger. We come in, we've got to exchange money. When we bring money in to build a church, it's not free. We bring that in, we've got to change it from dollars to Guyanese dollars. And one of the men we work with is a money exchanger. It would be a very evil man in our society. We might even say they're connected to the mafia. And uh, this man came to me after working with us. He went out to our camp and he said, uh, "He said I like what you do. He said, uh, I have already given my heart to Jesus. He said, and I've done a lot of bad things in my life. He said, and I, I know this won't make up for it. He said, but I, I need to do something he said i want to give you some land so he's given us land to build a youth camp in Guyana and so we've got uh, 8 acres of land to build a camp and we plan on using that in the summer for kids and and uh, also youth and then in the winter uh Future plans, we want to have a Bible school there. Why have empty buildings in the winter? Have a Bible school. And then also, we'd like to build an orphanage in a widow's home. The widows would take care of the orphans. And then we'd like to build a tilapia farm. So the tilapia is raised to feed the orphans and the widows and make a little bit of money so it's not all coming out of Doug Eccles' pocket. Amen to that. Amen. And so we got some things uh, looking forward to, and uh, we're excited about what God is doing around the world. And we believe these are great days to serve God. I want you to stand with me today. I want to read something out of First John two and two. Pastor called me this week and said you've been uh, really. Uh, pushing missions. This has been missions month. And so I'm just so glad to be here at the end of it. And uh, I, I preach a lot of places and uh, around the world and missions and souls are our dream. Our family dreams about souls. I don't know what you dream about, but we dream about winning people to Christ. But, you know, when he told me I get a chance just to talk about missions, I was excited because most of the time churches give me a little window and then I just got to preach something else. But this is my heart today. And I know that God's going to touch you today if you'll hear what He is saying by His Spirit. First John 2 and 2. And He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. I pray, Lord, that we would hear from heaven, that we would hear Your heartbeat today. Lord, that we would be in tune with Your Spirit. We ask for the manifestation of the Spirit, that we may profit by that manifestation. We are here to glorify and magnify You. Lord, stir us up, Lord, not just to be complacent and lethargic, about souls, but Lord, that we'd be red hot on fire, then Lord, somehow You'd use us to win uh, uh, people to Jesus around the world, in our neighborhood, in our family. Set us on fire today, I pray, that I may speak as the oracles of God and minister with the ability that You give. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I like the words here, He is the propitiation for our sins. But He didn't just stop there. And not for ours only. Everybody say, not for ours only. But also for the sins of the whole world. This is not just to be a bless me club. I believe many churches in America have just become a place for us just to get blessed. And yet, there are many people in our country that don't know anything about Jesus. I was flying on the plane just about 10 days ago, uh, from, uh, Miami, Florida to San Pedro Sula, Honduras. And as I was sitting there, uh, the lady next to me, I don't ever talk to anybody on a plane because, uh, I don't know. I just don't enjoy, uh, uh, talking. All right. That much. And if I do, t- if I fly with my wife, she yaps the whole time to somebody and I just sit there and I put headphones on and read a book. And that's just how I am. But this particular day, I wasn't talking to anybody. I had my headphones on. I was reading. And uh, the lady next to me was having problems getting her tray down. And so I just reach over and pull the tray down. And, and I had one headphone off. She says, oh, thank you so very much. She said, you must fly a lot. I said, well, about every week I'm flying somewhere. And she said, oh, what do you do? Well, normally I answer that I'm a motivational speaker. And the reason I answer that way is not because I'm ashamed of being a preacher. I'm not ashamed whatsoever of being a Holy Ghost preacher. Not ashamed of that at all. But the reason I answer that way is because if I say that I'm a, a minister of the gospel, then I begin to speak to their representative, not them. How many know what I'm saying? They don't order their wine and they don't uh, talk dirty when they find out you're a preacher. But if you just say you're a motivational speaker, the real person talks to you and sits next to you. And you have a better inroads into their life. But today, I I don't know what I was, I figured if I told her I, I was a minister, she wouldn't talk to me. So I said, I'm a minister. And she says, oh, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going down. We're going to feed the hungry in Honduras and then go into Guatemala. She said, oh, that sounds so great. Your life must be really fulfilling. I said, well, I love what I do. I love people. I love to help people come to Christ. And we began talking a little bit and she turned it to politics of all things. Now, she's from Massachusetts. You know, they vote Ted Kennedy in there. All right? And she says, you're from Oklahoma. I'm assuming people are a little bit different there than Massachusetts. I said, well, I hold a lot of meetings in New England and I love to preach in New England because I'm different. But I said, you know, they are very politically correct. You say things there and you can tick people off easily in New England. You know, uh, uh, last year I was... Talking about Tony Romo being in Mexico with Jessica Simpson. And I said in church one time, I said, at least he wasn't down there with another guy. And you know what? I got a girl from Connecticut up in my face. She said, that really offended me when you said that about Tony Romo. And she said, I said, well, look. Tony Romo being in Mexico with Jessica Simpson, if they're sleeping around, will send you to hell. But if he's down there with another guy, that will also send you to hell if you're fooling around. But I said, one's funny and the other's not. I was just trying to be funny. Relax. So there are a little bit different. She said, but I like this lady. Now, this is not a political speech today, alright? She said, I like that lady that's running as vice president... She said, that Palin lady, that's what she said. She said, but the, the media is making her out to be something evil. And I said, well, I said let me tell you something, ma'am. I'm not here to tell you how to vote. I said, but I grew up very similar to Sarah Palin, and I find her very normal. I find a lot of people abnormal, but I find her pretty normal. And that's what I just said to her. I said, but you know what is happening? I said, I look at everything biblically. I don't look at it in a way that other people look at things. I'm not telling you to vote for Sarah Palin, so if you're thinking that, get over it. Okay, you can vote for whoever you want. This is not a political speech. And the views of the guest are not necessarily that of the management. Okay, I just thought I'd mention that. Okay, so anyway, she said, why do you think they're so mean to her? And I said, well, I look at everything biblically. I said, I believe, uh, no, you know, I don't care who I am against, I'm not that mean against people I'm against. I said, I believe it's a spirit. It's a spirit. People don't get that angry over things and let, you know, ah, you know, over, you know, I don't like you. There are people I don't like, but I don't get all angry and just start tearing them apart. And and I said, I just believe it's a, a sign of what's going on in our world. And, and, and you know, I just began talking to her about that. And, and she uh, she just said, that makes a lot of sense. That's what she said to me. She said, I know you're a minister. She said, and you're going down here to d- feed people. She said, but i got a question. How do you know? This is what she says to me. She says, how do you know that God will forgive your sin? I'm just like feeling like this is the day to reel in a big one. She says, how do you know that God will forgive you of your sin? And I realize that I'm sitting there on the plane with headphones reading my book. It's not just about me. Sometimes we can get our own little world and think it's just about us and yet there's people all around us like this lady sat next to me. Her name was Valerie on the plane. I got her address to send her some information, but I'm going to tell you, she said, how do you know that God will forgive you of your sins? She said, I've done some bad things. I said, you know what? On the list of things, when Paul uh, uh, talks in Corinthians, he said, uh, you know, some of you were whoremongers and some of you did these bad things and listed them. And I read those off to him. He said, such were some of you. But we've been washed and we've been sanctified. I'm going to tell you, I said, we all have a past we'd like to forget. She said, uh, well, I hear people say this word saved. What does that word saved mean? I'm pulling it in a little closer. I said, well, the word saved comes from uh, Greek words uh, soteria and sozo. I said, you know, I can tell you what it really means. You know, that it's uh, uh, being whole, being delivered, being preserved, all these things. And I went through the list. I said, but really, saved just means I'm not going to go to hell and I get to go to heaven. That's as simple as I can make it. She said, is that what saved means? She said, I want to get saved. I said, well, you know, we're here on the plane. I believe you gotta pray according to the Word of God. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and you believe with your heart. Uh, And I said, so you need to pray this prayer with me and believe what you pray. But if you don't, you know, I I, I said, I don't know how you feel about praying out loud here on the plane. She says, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm gonna be saved. I'm telling you, I felt like busting through. You know what I'm saying? I felt like having a little Holy Ghost time right there. I thought about getting out an aisle and dancing a little bit. You know, but I thought somebody might taser me if I did. But I'm going to tell you, she prayed the prayer with me and afterwards she said, I have a peace I've never felt before. I've never felt like this before. She said, I just feel different. I'm going to tell you, she old things have passed away and all things have become new. It's that simple. It's about what God did is not just for me, but He did it for everybody. I know approximately... 3 million people die every month just like this woman would have without ever hearing a gospel message. 3 million people die without ever hearing the gospel in this world and some of them live in our country not alone uh, other places. They're not getting uh, uh uh what you're hearing today in every church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Some are I'm an hour in, I'm an hour out. You know what I'm saying? And we better do our deal. And if it goes over, we're going to mess up everybody. But I'm going to tell you something. It is about people and it is about them hearing the gospel. And how many know the gospel's only good news if it gets there on time? Go with me to John, the fourth chapter in verse number 35. John, the fourth chapter in verse number 35. We know the passage very quickly. It says, say not ye. Jesus said, say not ye, there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. He's saying, do not say there's no need to hurry. He's saying, this is harvest time. This is harvest time. How many know this is harvest time? The Bible says in Matthew, the ninth chapter, that the laborers are few, but the harvest is plenty. We need some laborers. It's harvest time. How many believe it's harvest time? Now, I grew up in western Oklahoma. My dad pastored in western Oklahoma for uh, my whole growing up time. And in our church in Woodward, Oklahoma, we had several wheat farmers. And some of these farmers had 7,500 acres. One of them had 10,000 acres. Another one had 12,500 acres. They had a lot of wheat. Now, I will tell you, the wheat harvest takes place in Oklahoma toward the end of May, the beginning of June. That is why we get out of school in May and not later on in the year like some other places. Because at one time in Oklahoma, if you were a farmer, and Oklahoma was a farming state, more than anything at one time, you had to all be involved in the harvest. The kids helped with the harvest. Now I remember when I was about a teenager that my dad got a phone call from one of the men in my dad's church, Dwayne was his name. He was my fifth grade Sunday school teacher as well. He had sharp pointy toe boots. He kicked me with them a few times in Sunday school. That's a Jerry Springer show in some places, but it helped me. He kicked me in church. I deserved it. Now, let me tell you something. Dwayne calls my dad. He says, Brother Eccles. He said, you know, harvest is on. Now, what was interesting about harvest, he still came to church on Sunday. Whatever. I'll leave that alone. I I was going to get meddling, but I won't. He said, harvest is on, Brother Eccles. He said, my brother-in-law was supposed to take the truck from the field To the grain elevator. He said, but they have put him in the hospital. He's had an appendix attack. He's had an appendix attack and they put him in the hospital. He said, I don't have anybody else to drive the truck from the field to the grain elevator. He said, if we don't get it from the field to the grain elevator, we don't make any money. He said, Pastor, I know i got somebody that will come tomorrow, but I need somebody today. He said, I know my dad pastored 800 people. It was the biggest church in that town. He said, Pastor, I know you're busy. He had plenty to do. He said, but you think you could help me today? Now, my dad could have said, look, I'm too busy. I, you know, I only wear a suit. I don't do those kind of things. He dropped everything that he was doing. He said, I've got plans, but he said, I'm going to be there because he knew how important the harvest was. I believe that we've got to get that mentality that it is important that we realize that if we don't get in the harvest for somebody, it may be too late. And we all got to get involved in the harvest. What I found in Oklahoma in the harvest at that time, that uh, these men would stay in the combine and they might get out and the women would set up a table and bring the food out to the field and they would do everything uh, uh, to facilitate bringing in the harvest. These are harvest days. And everybody's got to be on the team to bring in the harvest. There's a saying that goes like this, this teamwork makes the dream work. How many know you can have a, a one-man show in this church or you can have a team? And I'm going to tell you, you're not going to win a championship without a team. I believe the Boston Celtics have won 17 world NBA titles and they never did it with a league-leading scorer. Now why is that? Because it takes a team to win a championship. It takes a team to bring in the harvest. It takes a team to make a church grow. It makes a team to make things happen. And when we think that we are not important, what about that woman that brought the food out? She said, well, you know, anybody can cook. Not anybody can. My sisters can't. When they invite me to lunch, I'd rather go out. Don't tell them I said that. But teamwork makes the dream work. Somebody say amen today. I will tell you that we're involved with mass evangelism crusades. And some people say, well, I don't believe in those kind of things. I don't believe in mass evangelism. Well, you know what? I don't believe in it either. I just believe in a lot of individuals getting saved. Somebody one time got on me and they said, well, I don't really like what you're doing and I am not—I just don't like seeing thousands of people coming to Christ. You know, what about discipling them? And I'm going to tell you, I said, well, the Holy Spirit, when you limit Him and say that these people cannot be discipled, I find that the Holy Spirit is to us what Jesus was to the disciples. He was a discipler. So we've got to rely on the Holy Spirit to help disciple people. And the local church, they need to do their job. Not all of us have the same abilities, but we all have abilities and we need to use them. But I'm going to tell you, one guy got on my case. He said, I don't really like what you do very well. I don't like what you're doing. I said, Well, I like what I do better than what you're not doing. You say, I don't believe in mass evangelism. Well, the Bible's full of it in Acts 2. When Peter preached, 3,000 were saved. That sounds like a mass evangelism to me. We find in Samaria, when Philip the evangelist preached, the whole city of Samaria got saved. It's time that we start believing bigger than our pew and start believing for the world. Now you think about Simon Peter, used of God. He was on the team. But look how the team began. Andrew brought him to Christ. And then you don't find out anything hardly is said about Andrew from that point on, but there was somebody that was instrumental in Simon Peter's life that brought him to Jesus. And then Simon Peter became integral to the beginning of the church. We have late leaders and pastors training that we're involved with. That's where we feel we get the pastors that are involved with the crusade to uh, uh, disciple the new believers. We give them all the converts to follow up on. And many times, uh, I know in Catacamas, Honduras, I got a word back after having a crusade there, the largest church in that city was about six or seven hundred. And, uh, the pastor there, he sent a letter back, uh, the pastoral, uh, uh, I don't know what you call them, the, the committee that helped with the crusade. I got a word, but I'm forgetting it right now, but I'm gonna tell you something. He sent a letter back, he said, Doug, after the crusade, every church in our city, was at least doubled, if not some of them tripled. The churches that were running 50, some of them were running 100 and 150. He said my church was running 6 or 700. He said now we're having to have two services and we have more than 2,000 coming to our meetings. I'm going to tell you, this is what it's all about then we feed the hungry. We told you why we do that. It wasn't something we woke up one day and said, well, I think I'm going to feed some hungry people. We don't believe in doing humanitarian efforts just to be humanitarian efforts. The government can mess that up good enough on their own. But we do it because we want to share the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We love to give out Bibles when we can and give out to, uh, to those that have not heard the Word and those that do not have a Bible. You saw, I believe, the last picture was the prison that we keep going back into in uh, Guatemala. That is a very uh, dangerous prison. And even in Honduras, they have a prison there. They have 2,000 men uh, in the prison, but they have about 250 women. And they are mixed together, and I'm going to tell you something. It is a horrible place for a woman to be. I wouldn't want to be there as a man, but I'm going to tell you, when we come in there and preach to those people, the women, they have a moment when they have a moment's peace. Because it's not like our prisons here. It'd be like having guards around the hallway, but once you get in the prison, we call this the prison today, if you got in here, there are no guards. The prisoners govern themselves. It's a terrible place, but this is the Gospel that will change people's lives. And I believe we have wonderful things that we do, but all these things we found we cannot do alone. At our crusades, we have people helping us pray in the altar because you'll have sometimes as many as 10,000 in the altar at a time. It's I have prayed for 10,000 in one night in Ecuador by myself, but I'll tell you what, I found out it's a lot easier to do it with a, with a team of people. Amen? Then we have uh, the church uh, construction. Well, this is a man that I cannot nail a nail straight if I have to, but I can go to Lowe's. So it takes a team. Youth camps, we usually bring people in to speak uh, part of the time and do a lot of the music and the games and the recreation and things. And, And these are all things I believe it takes a team. How many understand that we have one lifetime to reach this generation? That's it. We have one lifetime to reach this generation, so there ought to be a little urgency. We ought not say we have plenty of time. Jesus said we don't have plenty of time. He said the harvest is plenty. The labors are few. We read uh, in Deuteronomy 8 and 18, it is He that gives you power to get wealth that He might establish His covenant on this earth. Sometimes we think that our money is all about us. And we think it's just, well, how I can get enough to pay my bills and do the things and have the vacation. But God gives you the power to get that wealth. Why? Because He wants to establish His covenant. Are you understanding? He wants to get the Gospel around this world. He gives you the ability to prosper. And He's not against you prospering, but in the middle of your prospering, He wants you to help somebody. And somebody says, well, I'm not going to do it. If it's not going to be you, then who? Who will reach them if not you? Second Corinthians five and ten. We know that we reach the world because it is harvest time, but I believe the second reason that we ought to reach the world is simply this for the we must all before excuse me, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Not only do we win the loss because it's harvest time, but I believe we've got to win the loss because of the judgment seat of Christ. And I know we don't like to talk about that very much, but every one of us that are saved will be at the judgment seat of Christ. This verse says everyone will be at the judgment seat of Christ, but that's not true. If you're not saved, you won't be there. But we understand the judgment seat of Christ. We are saved by grace. Everybody say grace. But we will be judged by our works. Now I know we don't like to go there. We like to get off of that. But I don't want to get to heaven by the skin of my teeth. You know, we used to have an old time preacher come to my dad's church. He'd say, I may not look like much when I get there. Well, my dad and I decided to turn around. We want to look like something when we get there. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. What happens at the judgment seat of Christ? It has not taken place for anybody. It takes place after the rapture of the church, but we find that at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll be judged for secret acts, attitudes, motives, lack of love, faithfulness, lack of faithfulness, idle words, and you'll have gain or loss of joy and rewards, and task and authority will be given to you, and much of that will be what happens during the millennium. But think about this. At the judgment seat of Christ, one of the reasons I've done a lot of things in my life isn't because, well, I just felt a a massive uh, uh, vision, saw a dream. I lay in bed one night in Guyana and went on television there. And I never had wanted to be on television. You know, it makes you look 20 pounds heavier. And I'm already 20 pounds heavier. Whatever. That was a joke. But I never really wanted to be on TV. But they told me that day I could be on TV in Guyana reaching one million homes. Potentially. Now, what if 10% of that watched? But they said for $75 for a 30-minute show. Now, why am I not on TV? I thought, at the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus, He's looking at me and says, why didn't you go on TV? Well, you know, I didn't have the time, didn't have the money. How many know it takes more money than that? We're going to spend more money than that at lunch today. I guarantee it. I plan on eating not at McDonald's. Are you hearing me? So we're not eating the dollar value meal today. Are you understanding that? But yet, why did I make that decision? Because of the judgment seat of Christ. It's not what you, you know what you'll be judged for? What you could have done, what you should have done, and what you did. You say, well, that's putting a little bondage on me. Well, I don't think so. I believe it's given me freedom. It's given me freedom. We're saved by grace in the parable of the talents. One was given five, the other two, and the other one. And when the master came back, the one with five made it into ten, and the one with two made it into four, and then the one, he buried his. To the one with ten that he doubled from five, he said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. To the one that took two and made it four, he said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But to the one that buried his ability and buried what he could have done, he said, I cast you into outer darkness. Now that may be a harsh thing for us. We like a a more uh, loving message to us. And we don't want to hear anything strong anymore. But I'm going to tell you, I'm strong about, I want Him to say, well done. I want to do the best with what He's given me. I know other people have greater ability and they have greater talents. I look at them all the time and I say, God, why not them? But I'm going to tell you something. It's not all about what we, what we could have done if we had more. I'm going to do what, what I can with what I have. Are you understanding me today? Mark 16 and 15, we've read it many times. It says, go into all the world and preach the Gospel. I was on radio in Trinidad and the lady interviewing me, she said, well, did you have a dream to go do all the things you've done all around the world? I said, no, I read His Word. It said, go. I didn't have any dream. I said, if I can't go by his written word, then a dream would be no good because the dream only confirms his word. But I have his word to go. I don't have, you know, a lot of people, I remember a few years ago, we were going to take a bunch of people, uh, with us to, to, uh, Guyana. And I called a friend of mine to help me do some music. He said, well, I know you're there, you got a group going to New York City. He said, I really feel called to do that. He said, but Guyana I'm going to have to pray about. Now why is that? Because there's no Macy's in Guyana. There's no no Manhattan in Guyana. Are you understanding me? There's no Broadway in Guyana. But folks, I'm going to tell you something. God's called me to New York City just as much as Guyana, but I'm going to tell you, it's not about convenience. It's not about what I like. It's about... uh, People that need the Gospel. Mark 16, verse 15. I want to read there to you. I know you've heard it many times, but let's repeat it today. He said, Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In My name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, He was received up into heaven and set on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. Everybody say the Lord working with them. And confirming the word with signs following. The Lord working with them. I was in Pakistan, in Karachi, Pakistan. An Islamic country. Only about 3% of the population are not Islamic and they call them everything. If you're Catholic, you're Christian there, okay? That just means you're not Muslim. So most of the 3% are Catholic. So we go in there to preach. We do everything we can do to fill a soccer stadium. We rent the sound system. We we do advertising. My picture's everywhere, which I really don't want it in Pakistan that much. But it's everywhere. And we do all of our efforts and we have 2,000 show up. Well, the first night, I will tell you something. On the way in, my buddy hits me. I can barely keep my eyes open. My head's doing this. We flew 36 hours to get there and I preached the day I get there. My head's flopping around. He punches me and he just says, Miracles, something went off on my inside. Something went off on the inside. I can tell you something that you're not going to believe today, but you can take it or leave it. That night, we had more than 100 blind people healed by the power of God. More than 100. We had them lining up to testify. And I'm going, is there anything else that God did? They said, well, this is my mother. She could not see, but now she can. This is my neighbor. I can guarantee you, she could not see, but now she can. This is the kind of thing we're having. Well, the we did everything we knew to do, but the Lord worked. Confirming His Word. The Lord working with us. The next night we had 4,000 out. The the next night we had over 8,000 out. The next night we had 20,000 out. The final night we had 40,000 out. We had done everything we knew to do, but the Lord working with us. Are you understanding me? The Lord working with us. And in that crusade, we had over 25,000 people say they gave their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ in an Islamic country that is very antagonistic toward people that look like me. But I'm going to tell you something. They are there. That's a country full of eye disease, full of sickness and disease. And they come. We tell them they're going to receive healing, that our Jesus will heal them. They come for healing and we give them salvation. God is a good God. He works with us. I was in Pergamino, Argentina. And on the final night of the crusade, we had more than 1,000 people testify that they were filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues in one service. You say, I don't know if much is happening around me. In the last days, He said, I'll pour out My Spirit upon all flesh. God is moving around this world. But what He will do is when we preach the Word, He'll confirm His Word with signs following. The Lord working with us. I take what I have. My ability. My talent. My money. I take what I have. And I give it to the hand of God and He stretches it just like He blessed the little boy's meal and was able to feed the multitude our little lunch. When you give it to God, what can He do with it? What can He do with it? Second Peter 3 and 9 says, He is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. The final reason why I believe we all need to be in world missions not only... There is a harvest. Not only are we in world missions because there is a judgment seat of Christ, and I'm going to give an account of my life, but the third reason I think is very important there is a hell. And He's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Now you think about this for a moment. People are going to hell, and God doesn't want them there. That's it but He gave us the gospel to spread. You think about this. My friend that traveled with me all over the world died a few years ago. Now I think nearly three years. When I was preaching the funeral, they brought in the casket, and the only thing I could think of, my mind wandered to three and a half years before, three years before, excuse me, three years before we were in Columbia, South America, doing a crusade at night, and I'm sitting on the front row during a morning session of training leaders and pastors. We had about 2,000 pastors and leaders out during the day. At night, we had lots more than that. I'm sitting on the front row, and he said something. I'm at his funeral, and my mind wanders to what he said at that meeting. I'd been with him several times in meetings since that time, but three years before he died, he said... Jesus had three and a half years to do the will of God. How much time do you have? It hit me like a ton of bricks. Because you know, you get around people all the time. They say, when my ship comes in, when my ducks get in a row, when my retirement happens, when, when this happens, that happens, when this, I'll do something. Jesus had three and a half years to do the will of God. How much time do you have? My friend, he only had three. Tomorrow I'm going to go to a funeral in Nixon, Missouri. Pastor friend of mine out in Broken Arrow, out really far out in Broken Arrow, Thomas Community, almost on the, it's in Wagner County. The pastor there is a friend of mine. His boy is 23 years old. I got a phone call from the main deacon in that church's wife this week. Their boy's up in Albany, New York, doing inner city ministry. Just been to Tulsa to raise some money to help him do inner city ministry. said he got up, everything was fine. He's been married one year, one month, 23 years old, graduated from Bible college, looked at his young wife and said, man, my heart's kind of racing a little bit. He laid down on the bed. He said, I'm going to just lay down on the bed. It'll probably get better. She goes into the restroom, comes back out, he's dead. Jesus had three and a half years to do the will of God. How much time do you have? I don't know. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to do something today. And if I have tomorrow, I'm going to do something tomorrow. And I'm going to make plans for the future. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to make every day count. I want every day to count. How much time do you have? People are going to hell, and God doesn't want them there. You think about the beggar the Bible talked about that said at the rich man's gate, when he died, the Bible said he went to paradise. He went to heaven. The rich man... He died also. But when he died, he went to hell. Now think about this. In hell, the Bible said he was full of torments. Three times, I think, the word, maybe four times the word torment is used in that passage describing hell. He said to Jesus, he said, you know, uh, hey, my, I, please send somebody to my brothers. I don't want them to come here either. Right? Remember that story? When you read that thing, the parable, you read about the rich man going to hell, the poor man going to heaven. And then you read your Bible, and there are lists of things that'll send you to hell. We read them over in Revelation 21, you know, whoremongers, unbelieving,
1: cowardly.
0: We we understand these words, liars. How many know those are all lists of things that'll send you to hell? Right? When you read the list of things that send people to hell, when you read this story about the rich man that went to hell, there's nothing said of those lists that sent him to hell. So what sent the rich man to hell? What sent the rich man to hell? I want to ask you that. This man, every day, the beggar, was brought to his gate and all he wanted was the crumb from his table. I don't know what the rich man was thinking. You know, we might say he was greedy. I don't know that it doesn't say he was. He might have said, Well, I'm gonna to go to the Donald Trump seminar, and when I get rich, then I'll help that poor beggar. He may have had good intentions. He might have thought, that beggar needs to get a job. They need to, they ought to do better than that. Well, maybe he did need to get a job, but He didn't say anything. I don't know. But what sent the rich man to hell? I'll tell you what sent him to hell. One word. Nothing. Nothing sent him to hell. Let me put it this way. He did nothing. Every one of us, no matter what place we're at financially, we are better than most of the world. and There are people that are always worse off than you. Some of our nothing is still better than a lot of people's something. We walk by people every day that are hurting. We sit by them on the plane. We go to work with them. We see them at Walmart. Their life is messed up and if they died, they'd go to hell. And we say nothing. We do nothing. And yet... If a song comes on the radio that's sentimental, we start crying. If we think about a pet that was our favorite that died, we cry. We wreck our car, we cry. We lose our girlfriend, we cry. But why don't we cry over the lost anymore? Why? Ask yourself. Where's our compassion? How's it going to be when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ? How's it going to be when you end your life when you could have done something and you did nothing? I'm planning for a better day. And if we really thought the loss were really going to hell... Wouldn't we do something about it? 3,000, 3 million, excuse me, over 3 million people this month will die and go to hell. I may not be able to stop 3 million, but I can stop one of them. I may not be able to stop 3 million, but I can stop two of them. I may not be able to stop because, let me tell you something, in some of our crusades, you may not think a dollar is much. You go to the gas station, it's not much. You go to lunch today, it's not much. But some of our crusades, a dollar will reach four people for Christ. I have a young boy out in Arizona. His parents are very wealthy. They could load him up with money, but he works. And they make him work. He's ten years old. He sends us $5 a month. Some people think that's insignificant. Well, $5 becomes $60 in a year. $60 and you divide that. He's worth about 250 souls in some of our crusades. Teamwork makes the dream.